Welcome to the After Talk at Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. This is where we get to drop the formality of our program, and I get to sit down with my producer, Blake, to crack open a beer, do a little Q&A, and have a discussion about this week's episode. In the future, we'll be checking our email and seeing if you, our listeners, have sent us any questions or comments, and we can address those here as well. episode three, and we are now one exciting episode away from the amazing conclusion to our three-part series on the space race. We're on the hump of it right now, if you will. Yes, the the Wednesday, if you will. Uh, So I'm going to let my... I'm gonna let my producer Blake... Well, let's let's first talk about... Sort of guide this. Let's first talk about what, what... Well, actually, before I can get into that, so... We uh we started out I think on our second uh, after talk saying that we were gonna drink a beer with it to kind of knock the cobwebs off and kind of make it more uh, fun for all of us and so I went to the store and I pulled up or picked up something that was gonna be more um, ah you could say might meet the theme of our show and so I bought a, a beer called Thor's Equinox. Um, and it's, 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 wait, well, it's September now, so we're almost to, uh... I think Oktoberfest is going on right now. Isn't that an equinox? Isn't October an equinox? Uh, we have the, uh... It's, so, you have the winter, so December and... We we could look that up. The, 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 there's obviously the summer solstice and the winter solstice, and the... Look it up. Because I feel like we're getting close because the days are starting to not be I, as ridiculous because we live in Washington State. We're and constantly like the, we're constantly exposing my ignorance of basic scientific facts on I'm these these after talks. But like like up here but, in Washington, like the summers are like seventeen hours of daylight, and then the winter is like five hours of daylight. So you are correct, Mister Producer, that Saturday, September Holy shit. September twenty second. It's today. It is the autumnal equinox. Whole, that's fucking um, nuts. At least, at least according to Google, that and that is the day. And that's not the day that we're releasing this podcast, but that's the day we're that's recording. That's the day we're it. recording is on the goddamn equinox. And I picked up a bit. See, this is the world. The, the world is weird, folks. And the autumnal equinox does not fall on the same day every year. Wow. You know what I should do in the in these after talks is if you ask me a question and I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, I should very quietly Google it on my smartphone in the corner and just work it and into I'll conversation. Vamp. I'll vamp while I'm openly thinking about my thought. I'll, I'll then... work it into conversation organically so it sounds like I knew the answer uh, when you brought it up. Well, cheers to the fucking equinox of today. Finally, we're living that. in normal human being hours now. Um, let's start off this way. It's a very intriguing episode. This is kind of like the the most action-packed part of uh, the series that we've had so far. Because um, this is like, we're actually going to space. We're doing things and, and getting people up there. What are your thoughts on it? So, 
I feel uh, very strongly that Project Gemini is this sort of forgotten era in the American space program. I could have easily done, and perhaps we will do, an episode on Project Gemini that's just Project Gemini. But in the broader narrative, and the broader context of the story that we're telling, uh, I kind of just skipped over a lot of what Project Gemini was and just hit a lot of the highlights. But Project Gemini was this extremely ambitious plan to sort of bridge Project Mercury, and that's that was just America trying to send people into space. We were already behind the Russians in the space race, and we just wanted to say, we can send people into space. We can do it. We can bring them back alive. We can master the, the basics of manned space travel. Project Gemini was a far greater leap to say, as a bridge to Project Apollo, we will test the technology needed in order to get to the moon. And there's uh, a Gemini mission that I don't think that I mentioned, where they used a special uh, booster. They docked with a special booster that fired its rocket engine in outer space and boosted them to a, a really high altitude. And I say a really high altitude, some something like... Um, Wait, so you're saying they docked. You mean, like, they sh- they shot it up there initially. It was sitting there waiting for them to arrive to it. They, yes. They... And what we did talk about in the episode was Neil Armstrong. Uh, Neil Armstrong's Gemini mission, he was the first person in space history to dock with another vehicle while in outer space. And right. so we did talk about that, but we also talked about how it was this really disastrous this really disastrous technical malfunction took place and they had to undock and do an emergency reentry. And so I won't I won't rehash that entire part from the podcast, but that was what was taking place. So there's a later Gemini mission where they docked with uh, essentially a large booster and that boosted them to a to a much higher altitude so they were, they were higher above the earth and further out into outer space than human beings had ever gone to before i believe we're talking about like hundreds of miles above the earth but they were they already see. in in yes they may have been earth's uh, orbit but they were outside of gravity so they were just meeting back up Right. Well, outside like, of gravity is, is a tricky thing because when you're in orbit around the Earth, there's a reason you're orbiting the Earth because right. you're captured by the Earth's they're gravity. They were in zero-G, though. They weren't experiencing yeah. gravity. Whatsoever. Yeah. They, so th- it's a funny thing. like, And it's funny to say altitude right. as well because yeah. altitude is something we think of, of with air travel. And so I think altitude is the only word really to describe it in, in my vocabulary, but it is. But they are, you're right, in outer space. So for me to say they went to a higher altitude, it makes it sound like they're still in the atmosphere. They weren't in the atmosphere. It's very, very proximal. It's kind of like how we've we've renamed uh, year zero in our calendar. And, and then because before we, we denoted that B.C. was before Christ and A.D. was, I think it's Adonis or something. Well, it's, it's Anno Domini, yeah. which is in the year of our Lord. Right. But the funny thing is is that it's something of a misnomer that people say B.C. means before Christ. Mm. And I don't think that B.C. actually means before Christ. I think that's a common uh, misconception. Something I found out the other day... Like, something I found out the other day is that uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson said that he still says B.C. Yeah, and A.D. He, he mentioned that on the Rogan which, podcast. And, and, and his rationale is beautiful, which I'm sure you're about to point out. In my I, personal opinion. I was just going to point out that if any, if anybody's following these uh, 
these very small details. I actually said BCE on uh, episode one of our podcast. So I say BCE only because that's sort of the common uh, academic. What's what they use in, in schools? Yeah, and anth- anth- anthropologists, people in the scientific community, that, that's what they use. And Neil deGrasse Tyson is at a, a point of prominence in his career where he can kind of do whatever the hell he wants in the same way that Elon Musk can smoke a joint even though he has a contract with the federal government right like he can like you you ascend to a certain point and you can kind of just say I'm just gonna do what I want because enough people value and respect and revere my opinion and my accomplishments so his rationale was that the church the Gregorian church were the people that put together the calendar and so they denoted and figured out how to do the numbers and make it work. That's fair. And, and we're following it still, so we should respect their, their nomenclature. And if we come up with a better calendar system, then cool, we can call whatever the fuck we want. But Yeah, that's, that's absolutely fair. And I think this is something that I, I think secular science and academia truly does struggle with. Is And a lot of people who are scientists are not particularly religious. And whether you're religious or not, whether you believe in God or whether you're an atheist, the pursuit of knowledge and the pursuit of science as a discipline, it's a secular endeavor. So even well, if, and even to be if fair, you are... To be fair, initially it was the, 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 the uh, astrologist from the Catholic Church that kind of pushed us in this direction because there, there was a lot of money that was coming to the church. Well, that's, that, that's another thing is that for a long time in human history, astrology and astronomy were virtually inseparable and yeah there's a link between human beings looking up at the night sky and studying the motion of the stars and the planets and you know it's, it's almost inescapable that there's some sort of emotional and spiritual feeling that people have in gazing up at the stars and the planets and the cosmos it is this sort of higher plane of existence it it's is awe striking it's awe striking and it's transcendent to, to some degree so it took a very long time for us to separate the cosmos and the heavens from um from those religious aspects of it and from astrology and, and from astrology deity, really and uh the astronomer carl sagan in his wonderful uh hit series cosmos points out the fact that there's a daily astrology column in every major newspaper and there's not even a weekly astronomy column. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's still it's still very much with us. And I've I've spoken to people who are very devout believers in astrology. And the thing about astrology, it connects it to our to our day to day lives. And we start looking at the people that are our friends, that are our family, that are our spouses, that we get into relationships with. If you're really into astrology, and you start applying it to your day to day life, whereas if I if I were to tell you about the moons of Jupiter, you could say, wow, that's a really fascinating scientific fact, but how are you going to apply that to your day-to-day life? How are you going to apply that to your relationship with your wife or, you know, your family or your parents or anything? You know, it, it's less relatable in, in some respects. We're a monolunar society. What do you mean by monolunar? We have one moon. That's, tr- that's true. <laughs> okay. <laughs> There, there, there are dueling moons going on. And... I should have made made the logical inference that monolunar meant one moon. Yeah. Um, but uh, basically what I was going to say about uh, Project Gemini, and I, I, I think I said, I hit most of the highlights in the, in the podcast about Project Gemini, but I think it's, it's, forgot, it's largely forgotten because what comes after Project Gemini is Project Apollo, 
which is incredibly historic because that's these are the first attempts to travel to the moon. What comes before uh, Project Gemini is just as historic. It's the first Americans and some of the first human beings to go into space. The first human being in space was a Russian, not an American, but you know, the second human being in space was an American. So, th- so these pioneering efforts and Gemini, it gets lost in the whole history of the space program. By the way, I have actually heard that it's supposed to be pronounced Gemini, Project Gemini. And a lot of people find that peculiar because Gemini is very much how, if we're talking about astrology, if we're talking about the twins, people would say Gemini. And... The only logical explanation that I found for that is that everybody in the NASA space program in the 1960s called it Gemini. Well, and so so it would be logical to continue to call it Gemini, but I called it Gemini. So this goes back to my uh, my interest a uh, couple like last year I went got real in deep with like documentaries about the 60s. Sure. And I, we had this discussion before, but I'll, I'll, we'll talk about it on the podcast, where like, I didn't realize how unsophisticated or how much we've gained in time like as far as our, our abilities as human beings. And watching just people interact in the 1960s as they're walking through their everyday lives, like, I guarantee you, like, if you've ever seen Mad Men, sure. that's not the way that they were acting. They were just, They were... A lot less sophisticated, I'm sure, and uh, it's it's just interesting that that we've become a lot more um, articulate, a lot more defined, maybe less. What would the term be? I think we just know a lot more than we used to, and we have a lot better access to a lot of things. Well, I. I reference this quote a lot that from John F. Kennedy, where he said, the greater our knowledge increases, the greater our ignorance unfolds. And I, you know, I, I very much believe that. But sure, it's fair to say that we knew a lot less about the world around us 50 years ago than we do today. And we're actually coming up on the 50th anniversary of the moon landings. And we can probably talk more about that in our next after talk for the next episode because that's you're giving away spoilers i want to want to do spoilers but but it's been a long time since the historical events that we're discussing and it's truly it's just truly shocking to imagine living in that era and my i've got older parents my parents lived in that era my dad is a vietnam veteran and so it's fascinating to talk to them i had conversations with my mother the other day where she lived in a society where if <laughs> if a teenage girl got pregnant she would have to have an illegal abortion or go to a back alley or you know god forbid get a coat hanger to to have an abortion and that is pre Roe versus Wade that is something that is almost inconceivable, I think, to to a lot of people living today. Yeah. So it was a very it was a very different time, and I think it was a very barbaric time in American history. My dad once had a conversation with some of his younger coworkers at a job that he was at, where he said, "Oh, people," he said, "people during the Vietnam War were getting drafted to go fight in Vietnam," 
And there were these two younger guys who looked at him and said, well, what, what does that mean that they were drafted? I guess they were a little bit ignorant of history. And he said, well, the, the government would send you that letter in the mail and you would have to go and fight. He, they said, the government couldn't force you to fight in a war if you didn't support that war or you didn't want to go. And he said, yes, they could. That's mm-hmm. what has been going on in American history again and again, you know, throughout the past 100 years. And, and they said, no, that would be like that would be like something that a communist country or a dictatorship would do. And he said, no. He says, this was a re- read a history textbook. This was a real and thing. And by the way, listeners, if you're over the age of 18 and a male, you are a part of that draft. You get you get put into the 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 what is it, the role for if all out war breaks out? Yeah, I mean technically no one has been drafted. Right, but I mean technically no one has been drafted in a very long time, but historical events could change drastically tomorrow. Something yeah. tomorrow could happen in some far off corner of the world that would necessitate perhaps a draft. And you know, you never know. Yeah, I, I, t- see, it's weird for me as someone who has served. It's it's strange to me for people to have that reaction, like, "Wow, what do you mean? Like, what is that like? Like, if you're a student of history, and you see how much war happens in mankind, you have to understand or realize as a human being, um, and I'm going to be a little cis right now, but like, being a man, like. That's what the men did. They went out and they fought wars to protect their families back home. Right. And that's kind of unfortunate. Well, fortunately, unfortunately, however you want to look at it, been kind of our role, you know, to be the protectors of, of not only our, our land, but our values too. Well, so uh, tying things back to the podcast here, I, I, what, I, what I wanted to say is something that I touched upon in the podcast is after the disaster of Apollo 1 which is the biggest catastrophe in the history of manned spaceflight at that point. Not just in the American space program, but in any space program. It's the greatest disaster that the space travel has ever seen. You had this, this attitude of the, the program might be canceled, and even if it's not canceled, nobody's going to be flying in space for the foreseeable future until we sort out all the problems that all the technical challenges that we're facing. But you had astronauts going to Deke Slayton, who was the head of the astronaut office at the time, and saying, I want out. I want to go back to being a fighter pilot, and I want to go fight in Vietnam and do bombing yeah, missions in North Vietnam. That was fascinating to me. So I guess we can go start tying into the show. But like that was fascinating to me that they were a part of the pinnacle of space exploration and there were people going i got buddies of mine that i was going through flight school with that i want to go serve with overseas and it was it's not i mean it's just bizarre you know in, in a certain way that 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 they were essentially if you're looking at like the the importance of of the different units in the military and in the, the the government like they were at the hardest thing you could possibly do you were you were going to frontiers that had never been ventured before gene cernan was uh, a gemini astronaut as well as an apollo astronaut and i think i quote i think in the next episode i quote gene cernan and i he, he's one he's one of my favorite astronauts so 
You just have to watch the next episode to learn about Gene Cernan. Watch. But, we well, like telling you to watch our podcasts because then you have to go on YouTube and try to find them. <laughs> but so anyway, he gave a really interesting interview where he said that he spoke with friends of his who he had served with in the United States military and said many, many years later after being an astronaut, he said, I feel a little bit of guilt. And he almost likened it to survivor's guilt. And he said, you guys were risking your lives flying missions to drop bombs over North Vietnam and to aid the war effort. And I was flying in outer space and I was a national celebrity and I was being interviewed on Good Morning America or whatever. And I feel like I should have been there. I should have been doing what you guys were doing. And he said that a lot of his friends from the military came back and said to him in these conversations, they said, no, you were doing something that the nation could be proud of, something that could unite us as a people in the United States of America and perhaps even unite the entire world in saying, hey, this is something that's really positive for humanity. This is a peaceful endeavor that is really, really positive, whereas the war in Vietnam was something that was really divisive, really controversial, and really difficult for a lot of people in the United States and a lot of people in the world to address and to deal with. And so what astronaut Gene Cernan said is a lot of the people that he served with in the military said no, that they thought that what he was doing was actually really overwhelmingly positive. Of course, not everybody had that opinion because my dad talked about at some point sort of rolling his eyes when so if anybody's seen the movie Apollo 13 Apollo 13 is another sort of disastrous occurrence in the American space program where they weren't sure if the astronauts were going to make it back to earth alive and these three men's lives hung in the balance while they were out there in outer space my dad kind of rolled his eyes because he said you know the whole time I was in Vietnam you didn't you didn't have 24 hour press coverage about us being in Vietnam and whether or not we were, we would come back. Of course, the war in Vietnam was covered extensively in the American media, but he, he, he felt that there was something, you know, I don't want to mischaracterize his, his opinions, but he almost, he almost felt, I don't know if I would say jealous, but he, he felt like that perhaps astronauts, being the international celebrities that they were, that the press would be very focused on them as individuals, but collectively, the hundreds of thousands of American troops serving in Vietnam, it was kind of like those individual stories got lost in well, the, the subterfuge funny, of the war. It's funny to hear that, that side of it. Woo, hello, Coaster. Um, but if you, like, like, it's only gotten worse, like, with modern warfare. Like, there's a lot of the people that are serving overseas, their stories aren't being told. Yeah, and that's it's funny. Our conversation has drifted so much towards the. Uh, but it's a military military side of things. But yeah, and the, but the the early astronauts were members of the United States military, all of them, virtually. Yeah. Except for uh, Valentina Tereshkova, <laughs> who was the first civilian to fly in space, right. who who we talked about. But yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. That with an all volunteer force, now that we're not drafting people. With an all-volunteer force, there's the tiniest fraction of the American population that 
fights in wars and sacrifices so much physically, psychologically, and the vast majority of the population cannot conceive of, of what, what that is like. Just, just in the same way that you and I cannot conceive what it is like to get on a rocket ship and fly in outer space. That that's an experience that we can read about it, we can talk about it, but experiencing it is something very, very different. I don't know. I was on the elevator at the Space Needle and felt pretty comparable. <laughs> that was uh, a wonderful trip to the Space Needle. We took a trip to the Space Needle. This was interesting, if I may embarrass my producer by saying, I think there's there's a little bit of a fear of heights that he had. A tad. That's why I was a Marine, because the Marines always stay on the ground or in the water, one or the other. There's no flying around. Well, I, there is, but I wasn't a part of it. I had a female friend who I knew for years, and she was from a Scandinavian country way way up north, and I said, have you ever seen the Aurora Borealis? And she said, yeah, I, I, I've seen it. She says, but I don't really like looking up at the sky. I don't really like looking up at, at stuff in outer space. And I said, aren't you fascinated by the wonders of the universe and how vast the cosmos is? And she said, yeah, she's like, but I think about it, and she's like, it's almost it's almost a little bit disturbing. It's almost a little bit intimidating. And she says, when I look up at the night sky, when I look up at the aurora borealis and the stars in the sky, she said, I almost feel a sensation of what can only be described as vertigo. And, of, yeah. of course, vertigo is usually associated with fear of heights. Yeah. But she talked about it, and she was a very intelligent, very learned person, so she was aware that we live in a very vast universe and that there are some amazing discoveries out there. And it was almost like it, it hurt her head. It was just she felt uh, too small, too insignificant, and too vulnerable just looking up at the night, at the night sky. And she even, she even told me, she said, uh, oh, I, I saw, I was up late one night and I saw a documentary, documentary, I'm using air quotes here, on UFOs, and she said I, I couldn't even sleep that night because it was just it was just too scary, yeah. and that was something that I, I kind of respected in a strange sort of way because it is it's a lot to take in, and as we will discuss in future podcasts, people hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago spent a long time trying to understand the things that were going on up in the heavens and astrology you talk about astrology we've been looking at the stars and planets for quite some time but it's only very recently in human history that we've been able to understand them so um one of my first questions uh so we have the gemini gemini missions and then we have the apollo missions what do they call those partitions they have a it's called it's typically called project mercury project gemini or project gemini project apollo so you could you could say that it's a project people refer to the space shuttle very often as the shuttle program the space shuttle is a little bit different because project mercury was a plan to send one human being into space at a time hmm. project Gemini was a plan to test some of the hardware that we would need to develop for space travel right. to get people to the moon in Project Apollo. The sh you could call it the shuttle project. A lot of people call it the shuttle program. It's really 
it's it, you know it's just uh but it really just words. but what you're saying is it really stems from an end goal of what they want to do and want, once they achieve that they rewrite what their next goal well is the first the three space programs were based on john f kennedy's pledge to send a man on the moon and return him safely to earth so mercury gemini and apollo all have that goal in mind the space shuttle represents a real shift in space policy at that time and some of it relates to defense because the space shuttle is essentially like and i've I've said this to you before the space shuttle is very much like a outer space pickup truck where you can throw a lot of stuff in the bed and you can drive you drive around and there's there's a cab because, because or a semi, yeah, like a semi truck. That there's a lot of potential. A semi eighteen uh, wheeler might be a better analogy, but you can take a lot of stuff up into outer space. And it actually it scared the hell out of the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union said, "Well, they're going to take these great big spy satellites and military nuclear payloads. warheads." And you have uh, Star Wars or the strategic um, SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, I believe is what mm-hmm. it was called under mm-hmm. Ronald Reagan, yeah, yeah. where they they said, "Oh, well, then now they're going to use the space shuttle to haul you know giant laser beams up into outer space and all this military hardware." So that was, but that was a distinct shift from President Kennedy's goal of just let's get a man to the moon, let's land on the moon, let's return him safely to Earth. That's what we got to do, which was a, a peaceful goal. Not to say that there aren't other applications for that sort of space technology, but so the space shuttle was something very different, and the space shuttle program, if you want to call it that, lasted for decades. Mm-hmm. So that was a very long thing. Whereas Project Gemini. There were only a certain number of missions slated for Project Gemini, and but I would I would say it's it's completely historic and it's very much forgotten in space history because everything that happened, a lot of the things that happened after it were very historic, a lot of things that happened before it were very historic. But one of the things that we touched on is Jim Lovell going up into outer space with his fellow astronaut on Project Gemini in a space capsule so tiny and so cramped where you had you had a less room than you would have in the front seat of a car. That is to say, you, he, they didn't have enough room. They're in a seated position, and they didn't have enough room to stretch out their legs. So imagine being for two weeks on a, you know, on a tiny little couch with someone, side by side with someone, using the restroom eating, breathing, sleeping, and doing that for two weeks. And they talk about it it almost drove them both insane, that it was really something that drove them physically to their breaking point. And I believe it was Frank Borman and Jim Lovell who would go on to do other great things in the space program. But I believe, I'm, I'm thinking of an interview where Jim Lovell was sitting next to Frank Borman. He said, Frank Borman looked at him, he said, I'm really not doing well. I really, I'm really having difficulty with this. I don't know if I can make it to the to the end. And Jim Lovell says, oh, "Can't you just hang in there for nine more days?" Sounds like he needed a diaper change. <laughs> God. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's this coaster. Dude, I'm not worried about the table, so you can just kick the toaster, to- toaster, not the toaster. Leave the toaster alone. Anyway, what, yeah, what I was going to say is is space travel, when you get into the nitty-gritty details, it is very... The early days of space travel 
were not pleasant. And the people who endured it, the people who went up there and did it, were were pretty tough because because it, it wasn't it wasn't always pleasant. It's just like everything else that people are pioneering into, though, right? I mean, no one who's ever on the bleeding edge of what anything is living things really nice. I mean, like the people that were coming over to the United States for the first time or going on traveling uh, across uh, the, the the ocean to go to wherever the fuck they were going. It wasn't a pleasant experience. Anybody who's played the game Oregon Trail uh, has died of dysentery, yes. Yeah, on... I feel like that's a staple for millennials and people of a certain age to have, who have played that game, or Oregon Trail. I think, yeah, with the age of the computer, because it was one of like the first series of games that came out yeah. on the computer. It was not Halo. It was not dynamic as far as computer games well, go. Well, and, and teachers were lazy when we were kids, and they're like, you're going to learn about Western history and the, the westward expansions to play the Oregon Trail. But, but yeah, no, it... I think <laughs> No, I think you're I think you're absolutely right is that whenever you want to be a pioneer in a new frontier, it's going to be very difficult. One of the statistics that I reference is I believe it was 7 out of every 10 people that came to Jamestown, which is the first permanent semi-permanent settlement in North America after Europeans after Europeans started coming to North America during the Columbian Exchange, seven out of every ten settlers in Jamestown would die. You would get killed by someone who's a Native American, or you would die of dysentery, like on the Oregon Trail, or any number of things could happen to you. So, but that wasn't, that's not necessarily a good argument as to why we should have never visited north america we should never colonize north america right. we should never visit new frontiers a lot of people out on the sea in the era of sailing wooden sailing ships died of scurvy but no one ever came came back and said to the uh, queen of spain look i don't think we can send any more people out on wooden sailing ships because of this thing called scurvy you know it's just scurvy's just too dangerous and sometimes, you know, sometimes people die when we go on these expeditions to foreign lands. So I just don't think we can do it anymore. Space travel, I think, is, is very much the same. And particularly, people talk about the dangers of traveling to Mars. Well, mm. if we have a colony on Mars, hopefully, I, I don't think seven out of every ten people who go to colonize Mars no. will die there. But we colonize North America with that rate of attrition during the first settlements in north america so i i think that the same thing if if we have to i think people need to be willing to make sacrifices to explore new frontiers to gain knowledge to push the limits in in many different arenas and many different disciplines and i i think that's that that's worth making that sort of sacrifice i've got a good lower back tattoo for you chris whenever you decide you want to get tattoos it's the toil is worth the spoil. The toil is worth the spoil. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, so my first question is, uh, you mentioned on America's first space flight, they brought morphine with them because they were afraid of what? So this is John Glenn, who is the first American to orbit the Earth. Not the first American to go into space. 
But the thing about John Glenn is he was going to be in orbit. He was going to be in outer space for a prolonged period of time, whereas Alan Shepard, the first American to travel into space, had about a 15-minute flight. So 15 minutes, even if it's really physically punishing on the body, you know, you can you can grin and bear it for 15 minutes, whereas... You can almost hold your breath for 15 minutes. Yeah, not quite. <laughs> but yes, yes. I mean, the, a little bit of an embellishment there, but yes. So to orbit the Earth, Yuri, Yuri Gagarin was in space for 90 minutes, maybe 100 minutes, because it takes about an hour and a half to make one complete orbit around the Earth. So... John Glenn, you have to remember, made three complete orbits around the Earth. So that's that's a fair amount of time to be spending in outer space. And the other thing is that Russians were in, the, you know, spacecraft in the Soviet Union were designed to be under remote control from the ground. American astronauts, they wanted American astronauts to be able to control their craft manually. So if you're controlling your craft manually, then it becomes a much bigger issue of being able to be coherent, being able to function, being able to do your job while in the environment of outer space. And if you couldn't do your job, if you were physically under duress, if you were in physical pain being in outer space, then that's going to be a problem because you have to be able to flip the right switches, throw the right buttons. You have to be able to do your job. Whereas with Russians... There was a certain gamble in a lot of cases. It's like, well, um, German Titov is an astronaut in the Soviet space program that we mentioned that orbited the Earth way more times than John Glenn and was in space for way longer than John Glenn was. But it was kind of this idea of, well, we don't exactly know what astronauts are going to encounter while in outer space, but... We're, we're pretty confident that we could send them up there and bring them back, and if they feel physically awful, well, that's okay. Whereas with John Glenn, it's like if you feel physically awful, maybe he's not going to be able to fulfill all of the responsibilities that he has as an astronaut. And so what it, what it turned out, it turned out that space wasn't nearly as punishing on the human body as people had originally thought. It's not physically, you know, launching into space, you encounter G-forces. Coming back from space, you encounter G-forces. And we discussed that already. But being in space, being in space physically is not painful at all. It's actually, you're floating around, you're doing Mm -hmm. ordinary tasks, and it's really, it's pretty chill. It's actually probably antithetical to pain because due to the forces of gravity, we're kind of used to being in the state of having a force on us. So that's why we have to work our muscles so that we can better overcome that. Because, I mean, if you weren't used to it, and that's what they, they find with a lot of the astronauts that do like a year tour and then they come back and it's like the world is sucking him to the ground and they're like trying to regain all of their... Scott their... Kelly. Scott Kelly is an astronaut that spent a year on the International Space Station. And there, there's a, a Russian man who spent even longer, spent 14 months in outer space. And so you're absolutely right. Coming back to Earth uh, can be a little bit painful. But being in space, 
not really not that big of a deal at all. So so that was something that we mentioned in the podcast. John Glenn didn't need morphine. He didn't need Dramamine. He didn't need any of the drugs or anything. Like he zero G and I feel fine. That is that is a quote that we reference in the in the episode. It was him saying it was like, I'm all right. I'm good. I'm good to go, guys. Although it does sound like the uh, forget the name of her the the Russian pilot or non pilot. Val, uh, Valentina Tereshkova, the first so, woman in space. It sounds like she could have used a little bit of pot while she was in space to get her hunger back underneath her. Yeah, and and just if if there are any really devout feminists listening to this program, what I would say about Valentina Tereshkova, which which I tried to say in the program as well, is that actually a lot of people encounter space sickness. Is this thing that it's like the contents of your stomach are literally in zero gravity right. and they're floating all around and so but they said it, it might be as high as one out of every three people that goes into outer space feels physically ill and feels really really bad but the funny thing is is in the early days of the space program they looked at people and they said oh maybe you're not really cut out to be an astronaut <laughs> maybe you're really not cut out to be flying in space but what they found with longer duration space flight is that the human body is extremely adaptable. Yeah. And what you have essentially is people that feel physically awful for two to three days. And I think uh, Valentina Tereshkova was up there for two or three days. But they said, like, people, there are people who go up into outer space, of course, for six months. Or yeah. in Scott Kelly's case, he was up in space yeah. for a year. And they say it lasts three to four days. You feel physically awful. You There are headaches. There's a lot of stomach problems. There's a lot of nausea. And then... Four days in, five days in, six days in, you feel fine. The human body adapts. Yeah. And you, it's you, like seasickness. I don't know why they didn't make that correlation. It's a pretty easy determination to make. But, I mean, that I, makes sense. then again, space is a scary unknown place. So. Yeah, we, we didn't know anything about space. But I think, so that's, I think, something that is, uh, it gives me a lot of hope about the future because people looked at it in this very pessimistic way and, and said, oh, the human body just can't deal with being in space. Well, no, the human body can deal with being in space, but some people take a little bit of time to adjust. Yeah. And honestly, though, if you're going to go on a space mission for a year, two years, three years, five years, ten years, for someone to say, oh, but the first two days, you're going to feel like shit, yeah. but it's okay, it'll pass. Yeah, I, I mean, fuck, if you go to a different country for the first couple of days, you're probably going to get sick. So, I mean, just kind of... The way the human body works, where it like it goes through a shock period and then gets over it. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, go ahead. No, I was just I was just gonna say, we had a lot of fears and anxieties about going into space, and a lot of them turned out to be unfounded. Not to say that space travel isn't dangerous. Space travel is extremely dangerous, but the human body is very resilient, and John Glenn didn't need morphine. Mm-mm. So speaking of unfounded fears, uh, you said that they they didn't initially want to send women into space because they thought that they might need special equipment. Do you have any indication of like what that special like other than like the obvious things like I didn't I didn't say that they would need special equipment, but I did say that there was reluctance about sending women into space. Mm. I just assumed it was for that reason that they would have to completely change out the kit and and figure out a new SOP for being able to send. So so the funny thing is is Valentina Tereshkova, I believe, that's 1963. Mm-hmm. And America's first astronaut, if I'm remembering correctly, is Sally Ride, 
who went into space in like 1983. So it was literally like two decades passed before the United States even attempted it. And I don't know if this is a story pertaining to Sally Ride or another female astronaut, but it shows... Dude, that's another great topic for another... Female astronauts. Yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And so we, we already covered... Uh, and, and the funny thing is Valentina Tereshkova is still alive. Really? And, oh, absolutely. She's still alive. Wow. And she... Uh, well, 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 it was... This, what am I thinking? She's probably she was in 60, her tw- right? Yeah. She was in her 20s when she went into space. Yeah. What am she I was thinking? very young when she went into space. But uh, so she's still alive, and someone said, they said, well, if they start sending people to Mars and you're still alive, would you be would you be down to go? And she said, yeah, I'd go to Mars. You send me, like, sign me up tomorrow, I'll go to Mars. She is an uh, absolute badass. I yeah. would, Yuri, uh, Yuri Gagarin, Valentina Tereshkova, very much the same generation. Yeah. And it would be, it would be an honor to be able to shake hands with that woman. I, I'm sure I will probably never meet her, but an absolute legend. And you still see she gives interviews. She's got grandchildren. She's got a big family and uh, just, just an incredible woman. But what I was going to say is there's some story. I don't know if this is a myth, but I think it's an actual, an, an actual anecdote where they spoke with a woman who was about to go into space on a shuttle mission. This is a female American astronaut, and she was going into space for one week. And astronauts at NASA, they're great at putting men on the moon. They're great at sending people into space. They're great at designing space vehicles, but they are engineers. And they have sort of a tunnel vision focus on what their goal is, and there's a lot that they don't know about the the world that exists outside of NASA. And Especially outside of women. A lot Especially of engineers women. don't understand women. It's it's an unfair stereotype in some respects, but yeah. it's a stereotype because sometimes it's true. Yeah. So they this woman, this female astronaut, might have been Sally Ride, might have been somewhere else, talks about that they actually that there's someone looked at her and was dead serious before her one week long mission in outer space, and they said, So we're looking at the manifest of the cargo we're going to take into orbit for our week-long mission on the space shuttle, and we're wondering if 100 tampons will be enough. And she, <laughs> she looked at them. She looked at them, and she she was like, are you fucking kidding me right now? Am I being punked? Yeah. Like, And, and they were like, well, is that, do you, is that enough? Do you need more? Do you need fewer? And she was like, what? And yeah. so that, and that shows you just how, and I think it, it speaks to something in our, our society that is a problem, that was a problem 20 years ago, that was a problem 50 years ago, and that is a problem today, is that men and women... Uh, well, no, but that goes back to what I was saying, is that we knew so little at that time. Yeah. And that, like, now we know so much more about each other, men, women, all the different sure. cultures. And I think we can, we, we you and I as two... Uh, cisgendered two, males. Two cisgendered males. I will. <laughs> I will absolutely say, this is why I like having female friends. Is I want to learn more about what is it? What is the experience like of being a woman? Because I want to know. I want to know enough about it to where I never get caught in a situation where I have to like say to an, a female astronaut who's about to go into outer space, like, "Is a hundred tampons enough? Like, is that going to be enough for you to survive a week in space?" 
I think is a hundred tampons enough is probably the wrong thing to say to any woman. <laughs> <laughs> any time like you're on a road trip it's just so is a hundred tampons enough for this road trip but so <laughs> it's ridiculous it's utterly ridiculous but it shows you and and so you can imagine the first woman in space this the sort of stuff that that she encountered and and in all honesty what i mentioned in the podcast is like well they, they said oh is it going to do any damage to her reproductive system Man, mm. if someone told me is like you can you can go into space and be a national hero, but you might not able be able to have babies. You might you might have to adopt. I'd be like, well, shit, sign me up. The 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 first lady astro team. Yep. What a weird first lady astronaut trainees. What a what a weird name to give the women of of American space travel. Yeah, very strange. Um, but you know, uh talking about women flying in outer space and i'm a i'm a big advocate i'm a big advocate of human space travel so that means men going to space women going to space people people of all ethnicities going into space you're you're an advocate for people going to space you don't need to you don't need to like start combing in people and saying that people of color should go to space before everyone else should it's just people going to space well but all people all people um but so Women uh, flying into space, they, they actually, there were discussions in NASA in the very early days when some of these very skilled female pilots were being trained and being subjected to a lot of medical tests and things like that. There were discussions that maybe women would be better as astronauts than men. And one of the reasons for that was, well, we're, we're constructing incredibly tiny cramped spacecraft where there's not much room and there's actually a height restriction for astronauts tom it's hanks it's 510 hmm? yes and so tom hanks actually portrays astronaut jim lovell in the movie apollo 13 for anybody who's seen the movie apollo 13 and they said that in real life tom hanks was would be too tall to be an astronaut really he would have not made the cut and tom I hanks was, is not i thought he was short I he's he's taller than five ten man. What? No way. Anyway, uh, but they they said that that women like if we could find a lot of women who were five foot two, and just place them in the space capsules, that could be. That... I feel like. I feel like he's like. Yeah, he's. I was gonna say I feel like he's five seven. He's five seven. He's five seven. He's a short guy. So and maybe I, so he is too tall. I actually actually don't remember the height requirement, but I, I know for uh, the like the military fighter aircraft, it's five ten. Yeah, you you said five ten, and I kind of like shrugged my shoulders because I don't know what the height requirement was. I think it was probably below five ten. Yeah, there's somebody listening right now who knows and is like shouting at their shout shout to your microphone because someone who's very frustrated that if I don't you know say this. it a little bit louder, I might hear you. Just hang on, it's coming. Uh. No, it's gone. All right. Sorry. Can't hear you. There's no, there, there's some very interesting subjects that you bring up that other people would know in terms of space history and space trivia. But what I would say is, is, uh, Yuri Gagarin was extremely short. He was, mm. he was young. He was handsome. He had a great smile, incredibly short. And so a lot of the people that went into space were very, very short. And so 
that was an advantage when they when they talked about women. They said, well, we could find a lot of really talented female pilots yeah. out there who aren't particular who could yeah. just slip right into that space yeah. capsule and do everything we need them to do. So to take things on a completely different topic, uh, what was the deal with the beef between uh, what Holbert and uh, von Braun? Where did that 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 beef come from? Because I know initially uh, von Braun adopted Holbert's uh, ideology, but it seemed like early um, so, theories. So this, this is another a pronunciation like Gemini or Gemini. Okay. Um, I think it's Hobolt. Hobolt. Okay. Um, I've heard it pronounced Hubolt as well, and this is a guy who made an incredible contribution to the space race. So I feel bad that I couldn't get. Maybe maybe I'm not sure of the pronunciation of his name. And but, I did not conform to either of those pronunciations, unfortunately. <laughs> Herbert? Her Humboldt. Whole bolts. Who are we talking about? Yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, it was fundamentally based on how do we get to the moon? What is the best way to get to the moon? And Von Braun, who's a brilliant guy, he said, I have this plan to get to the moon. We'll build this giant supercraft that's going to house three people for a journey that's going to last one week we're going to take this craft we're going to burn all this fuel that's going to take us to the moon we're going to land on the moon we're going to blast off from the moon we're going to travel back to earth and we're going to re-enter the earth's atmosphere and all three people will share in this wonderful voyage to the moon now you think of the hardware that's necessary for that you've got to be and and we're talking about a craft that would be 70 feet tall that would be landing backwards on the moon. I thought one of the interesting things is Von Braun wanted to land a rocket backwards on the moon, and there were a lot of people, like Hobolt, who said, that sounds really ambitious. I'm not sure we're going to be able to do that. And now we have Elon Musk today landing rockets on Earth backwards on the planet Earth. So it is possible to land a rocket backwards. Which is ostensibly a, a lot more difficult. Because there's a lot more gravity to deal with. Sure. And to be fair, no one's ever landed a rocket backwards on the moon, so we don't really know how difficult that would be because we've never tried it. Yeah. But what I would say is... Because at that at that point, sorry. Go ahead. It's not... The difficulty is not doing the task. It's being able to conserve enough fuel to be able to do it and then get off of the moon and come back, or Mars and come yeah. back Yeah, and so, so you think of a, a vehicle like that... You've got to have enough fuel to land on the moon. You've got to have enough fuel to take off from the moon. You've got to have enough fuel to get to the moon. You've got to have, have enough fuel to break out of the orbit of the moon right. and travel back to the planet Earth. So that's, that's very ambitious. And Von Braun imagined this craft, and it would have to be a very large craft because just the heat shield, you know, heat shields in spacecraft, that's a very heavy component in well, a spacecraft so just to be specific what you're talking about is the the plate that goes between where the engines are they're blowing the thrusters to send it up into space and the astronauts themselves in their own vehicle right well no specific oh so this is great that you're asking for clarification specifically what i'm talking about is a heat shield is what protects you when you re-enter the earth's atmosphere at the end of a space oh, so it's the entire encapsulation well, it's not the entire it's not the entire spacecraft, but it's it's this when you re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, there's a tremendous amount of heat and there's a tremendous amount of plasma that sort of en- envelops. You know, it's, it's this very intense. Of friction. Uh, fr- so that would be 
That would be the simple explanation. A lot of okay. people say it's because of friction. Uh, if you wanted to get really pedantic about it, if you wanted please, to get really detailed... Please get very pedantic. Well, so... I used to work at We a, are a university here at University University. We, we teach people. So we're allowed to be pedantic. We don't claim to be an actual university. It's not like Trump University where we're going to like demand tuition. And we're more like DeVry. Later. Yeah, we're, we're more prestigious. So anyway... <laughs> This is this is a problem that I think I've, I've encountered throughout my life being fascinated by space, but being essentially not a scientist. And I worked at the Fisk Planetarium. Anybody who goes, anybody who lives near Boulder, Colorado or visits Boulder, Colorado, go to the Fisk Planetarium. You will have your mind blown. It's one of the most incredible planetariums in the country, if not the most incredible planetarium in the country. But I, I worked around people on a day-to-day basis who were studying astronomy and astrophysics and theoretical physics who were absolutely brilliant. And when you get into conversations with people like that, so friction, just saying it's friction. You re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and there's friction between the space capsule and the atmosphere. That's really just a gross oversimplification and you would encounter people who were really brilliant but also people who were were talking about the science on a day-to-day basis who would say well no actually it's not friction it's blah 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 and they, they would go into this elaborate explanation so i would i'm hesitant to say okay that it's friction because that's that's sort of an oversimplification of the the physics that's involved in re-entering the earth's atmosphere and i i in some respects, don't feel Qualified. brilliant enough to really, <laughs> yeah. really describe that in detail. Maybe we can do an episode or an after talk where I do describe all the science behind that. But anyway, we could we could do a physics, an astrophysics show, Chris, where you can study astrophysics and give us your breakdown on. I'd be happy to all the different principles of astrophysics. In the future, in the future, I would absolutely love to contact some of my colleagues from the planetarium and sit down with them in an after talk and say hey what actually happens when a spacecraft re-enters the earth's atmosphere but what i do know is that you need a heat shield and you need a very good heat shield to be able to protect the astronauts inside Mm -hmm. the space capsule in the journey through the atmosphere back down to the earth and that was uh that was and is a very big uh thing to consider in building spacecraft. On the other hand, Hobolt said, hey, I've got another idea. What if you have a little tiny space capsule with the heat shield that can re-enter the Earth's atmosphere? What if you build a different craft that doesn't need a heat shield? So we don't need any heat shield because the moon has no atmosphere. There's no air on the moon. Some people, some, uh, some have said that there's a very thin, extremely thin atmosphere of something on the moon so this is another this is another uh, circumstance where it's like does the moon have an atmosphere well the short answer is no but the long answer is well kind of sort of a little bit Mm. just barely but basically you don't need a heat shield to land on the moon or take off from the moon it's not necessary so Maybe you could build a really lightweight craft and put one or two people in this really lightweight craft, and it would just be a shuttlecraft to go to the moon and blast off from the moon, and it would be very lightweight, and it would be much easier to do a, a moon mission if you had that. And then, and then that raises the question, if you have two spacecraft, then you would need to dock them together and undock them and redock them. Mm. 
And so that was the the sticking point for a lot of people. They said, this sounds too complex to do lunar orbit rendezvous, which is what it was called. That doesn't seem like it would be safe. It seems like you're making this way more complicated than it should be. And anyway, Werner von Braun, he's uh, a lot smarter than you, fucking John Hobolt. Maybe we should just defer to his better judgment. And at the end of the day, somehow... And I think this is a wonderful lesson about advocating for the things that you believe in. And if you have an idea or if you have a proposition in the workplace or in your own personal life and you feel like, no, I think this is the best way to do X, Y, and Z, to advocate for it and to do so passionately. John Hobolt went over the head of Werner von Braun and wrote to the head of NASA and he, he said, I realize this that I'm going... I'm going way outside of my pay grade and then I'm outside of my area of expertise and I realize that you might think that you're dealing with a crank, that you might think that you're dealing with someone who's a little bit crazy, a little bit nutty, but I feel very strongly that this, John Hobolt didn't say this is the best way to get to the moon, he said this is the only way to get to the moon by the end of the decade. And Werner von Braun was a a man of great vision, but... I think this this was a, a younger guy who said, ultimately, at the end of the day, we've got to meet the end of the decade deadline, and we've got to do this as quickly and efficiently as yeah. possible. So it's not merely finding the best way or finding the ideal way of yeah. doing it. It's like, we got to get this done, and we got to get this done quick, and this is the way to do it. And he was he was so passionate that at some point he won over Werner von Braun to the point where his Werner von Braun's own team was presenting this other this other plan to get to the moon and he stood up and he said to the to the people who were working for him to the people who literally worshiped him he said i appreciate you guys advocating for essentially what was his position what was what he endorsed he said but i've i've had a change of heart and i've changed my mind and i think this guy is I think this guy's idea is the correct one. And I think it took a lot of humility for him to do that. And I think it's it's an incredible story. And, you know, a lot of people knew, know who Neil Armstrong was. Not very, that many people know the name John Hobolt. It's too bad John Hobolt doesn't have a national Nike campaign up for him. <laughs> Believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. John Hobolt. I have not. I've yet to see that meme. I'm I'm waiting for it. Um, um, one of the things I thought was interesting, and and maybe it's just retrospect that that is causing me to query about this, but the the um, the largeness or the 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 what am I trying to say? The size, the scope scale yeah of... put those words words together um the unprecedented unprecedented is that a word no that is not um unprecedented the yes the unprecedented uh occurrence of being able to send three people to space oh yes because you referred to this as being uh, pretty much being a, a sending people to space in a clown car Vushod. yeah well see see i use the clown car analogy because it was referred to in the Soviet Union at the time by people who were involved in the project as 
a space circus. They said, <laughs> this is so crazy. This is so insane. And I will tell you, only a Korolyov could have pulled it off. And this guy, you talk about people who are not remembered in the historical, historical record. Sergei Pavlovich Korolyov is not, like, that's not a name no. that people would instantly recognize. No. And he is, out of all the names that we speak of in this three-part history of the space race, he is the most important, bar none. And anybody else is a far distant second. He's this incredible character who said, no, I can pull this off if everybody does exactly as I say. Hmm. If everybody follows my lead, if we put all the pieces together just right, this can happen. It's a gamble, but we can make this work. And it, it's a little ridiculous, but it was something that that just uh, it just really embarrassed the United States and the West because they were like, we're really close to sending our two-person crew into outer space. Just you watch. We'll send this two-person crew into outer space, and we'll catch up in the space race. And then they open up their newspapers the next day, and it's like, Soviet Union sends three people in outer space. And, by the way, they're not wearing spacesuits. They're wearing these futuristic-looking little sweaters. They're wearing these tiny little helmets. And they're all smiling, just kind of walking up to the launch pad. And it looks like the Soviet Union has perfected space travel to such a degree that they're just... that, that people... Don't need spacesuits to travel. And spacesuits were a precaution. If the cabin of the spacecraft depressurizes at some point, at least you have your spacesuit on. And they people believed in the West that the Soviet Union had mastered space travel on a level that they couldn't conceive of. Mm. It was interesting to me that that was like a period in time where no matter what the United States did, they felt like they were always being outed by the russians it's it's kind of a historical anomaly and it's really i'm i'm something of an amateur historian in case people couldn't tell <laughs> but it's it's shocking because i don't really i i don't think there's a lot of historical and uh, i don't think there's a lot of historical events that are analogous to the space race in the sense that there aren't a lot of examples in the last half century where the United States of America was embarrassed and humiliated and bested by a foreign country again and again and again and again. I, it's, just, uh, it's just very shocking that this, this was what was happening. And it was, it was something that happened consistently over a period of years. And John F. Kennedy's pledge to land a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth was constructed in such a way that... John F. John F. Kennedy consulted with his advisors and consulted with people who knew a lot about human space travel, and they said there's nothing else that we could hope to do before the Soviet Union because they're so far ahead of us. And they were talking like not just oh they're six months ahead of us, oh they're a year ahead of us in terms of their technology. It was like they're five years out ahead of us. And so when someone is five years ahead of you technologically in any industry or in any discipline to then say, oh, well, here's a plan where we will catch up to them in six months, it's just not really feasible. And the, the crazy thing is, is that both nations are competing. It's not like Russia is doing this and the United States thinks this is a good idea and so we're going to start getting into We're both working at full tilt trying to get into this. Right. Right. It's and nuts. Yeah, we as Americans always assume and we believe because we're Americans and 
we're uh, American centric, Amerocentric, that we believe that if we put our minds and our hearts into something, eventually we'll come out, or that we will be the victors regardless. Um, and not to spoil the next episode, if those of you are students of history, but we do come out on top. Sure. But but it wasn't without a period in time where we were getting our shit pushed in, like, over and over and over again, being reminded that it's a good reminder for life that, you know, you're not always going to be the one on top, and you can't just fold your cards and, and push away from the table. Eventually, like, you've got to keep playing the game to a point eventually where you're going to you're going to come out and from that point to be where we are now yeah we're not going to the moon on a week to week basis but we are a a a, a public spacefaring nation and a private spacefaring nation and so we overcame well, and and so that ties into this this other idea is at some point we may see a new space race and the space race could be be between the United States and Russia again, possibly. It could be between the United States and China. But they say more than likely it could be a space race between the public sector and the private sector, between NASA and private corporations like Lockheed Martin and yeah. SpaceX. And I think that's... Beautiful. Th- there's Yeah, that's beautiful. That's personally. beautiful. I agree. And I think I could say a lot of things about capitalism that are very negative. Yeah. But ultimately, I would say that's one of the positive things about capitalism is promoting competition. If you have two different companies or two different governments, two different organizations... The best that, wins out. Yeah, to, to say, we want to do this the best that we can. And to say the best doesn't necessarily mean the most moral. Absolutely. And so that that was that is the thing about the Soviet space program. I will speak highly of the Soviet space program because they have done amazing things. But they were willing to say, mm, we realize that the cost could be very great if we mess it up. But but again, in the Soviet Union, you have to conceive that in the Soviet Union, if an astronaut died, there there and there are lots of conspiracy theories that astronauts were dying well before... There's a conspiracy theory that before Yuri Gagarin was... Uh, blasted into outer space that there were one or perhaps multiple astronauts that they tried to send into space but none of them came back alive. There's another conspiracy theory that they sent someone into space named uh, Ilyushin was and again it's a conspiracy theory I, I want to acknowledge this but they, there's a conspiracy theory that they sent him into space brought him back and he had a traumatic brain injury and he was so fucked up that they were like we're not going to parade someone around red square as a national hero when they're drooling into a cup and they're Mm -hmm. not mentally competent what we want is somebody who's young and charismatic and vibrant and who we can bring back from space alive we can be the next prime minister or the next president so we can like laud our accomplishments yeah, and so so we don't we don't know for a fact that that was the case, but we do know that the Soviet Union was a country that was very very secretive about everything that they did. And so in the Soviet Union if something went wrong, they could sort of cover it up, they could sort of write their own narrative in the historical record about how things went, about how things really were. But one of the things that I read that was interesting one of the things that I read was 
that the American space program has always observed this rule, bring back the astronaut, no matter what. Mm. And that actually goes back to John F. Kennedy's pledge. He said, landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the Earth. He didn't just say, we're going to land a man on the moon. He said, and returning him safely to the Earth. Logical operators are important, Christopher. That's fair. But what I was going to say is, so in the American space program, it's save the astronaut's life, bring back the astronaut alive. And they said, I don't know if this is true or not, but the article that I read suggested that the Russian model was make sure that the space vehicle works perfectly, that it goes up there, make sure the space vehicle is intact, and the astronaut is secondary to that, or the cosmonaut is secondary to that. I don't know if that's that's the doctrine which they operate in, but it was definitely uh, it was definitely a space program where they said we're more willing to risk human lives than in the American space program, which is ironic because the first astronauts to really uh, to really die are American astronauts in the Apollo One fire. I'm also I'm I'm leaving out I've left out of the podcast. There's this astronaut named uh, Bondarenko who was a Russian astronaut, who was a, really, I say he was an astronaut, he never flew in space. Uh, he was never a cosmonaut, but he was a cosmonaut trainee. Did he and, have a make-a-wish? <laughs> I'll tell you this, man. He was in a pure oxygen environment. He was sealed in a pure oxygen environment on Earth during like a training, sort of a training uh, facility. And he was sealed in this pure oxygen bubble boy. environment. <laughs> Well, and so I believe it was a pure oxygen environment, and he had uh, like a hot plate used to make meals because they're like we're gonna lock you in this in this capsule for three days and see how you would fare in outer space. And he had something like a hot plate and uh, to to make food on to heat his meals up. And there was a spark, and he burned to death, and he died as a cosmonaut trainee. And it says that even training as an astronaut, even before you go out into space. That's very dangerous. Well, no, that's the reality of the military sector of things. I've, I've lost friends from accidents. Humvee turnovers. I lost a, a corpsman from that. It's probably a far greater number of people that die from accidents than those that die in combat. And the, that's the, true. the uh, juxtaposition for that would be there's probably a lot more people that died trying to get to space than those that were actually in space that died. Well, ironically, that's not true. But it's not true... Because unlike the military, the, the space race, like the, the cost that it takes to send one person into outer space is extremely high financially. Right. So for a government to send, no, for a government to but send no, a soldier. But that is true. How many people have died in outer space? That's what I'm saying. Not that many, but, surprisingly. But the, but the number of people who have died trying to get to space is far higher than the number of people who have died in outer space. That's an interesting... I would have to get back to you on right? that because that's an interesting... But I don't know if that's true. I don't true. know of anybody who, know who's true. been up there that came back... That, that While they were in outer space, they died, and then we had to deal with their body when they got back. It's a very short list, but... Uh, so all, all I would say is to the space history buffs that are listening now, I, I would we say... We are the only space history buffs, Chris. Haven't you looked through the podcast feed? <laughs> we're Universe University. 
Yeah, apparently uh, my producer Blake tells me that there aren't a lot of space and space history podcasts out there, so I, maybe we don't have that much competition. But there are definitely, I hope, I hope there are space history buffs listening. And so I'd say the Columbia Space Shuttle, the Challenger Space Shuttle, you have entire crews that died, of course. Trying to get there. Yeah, uh, so I guess I would I would make that concession that yeah. one of them was a disaster that took place during the launch of the spacecraft, that would be the Challenger disaster. One of them was a, dis- a disaster that took place during the re-entry of the oh, spacecraft okay. into the Earth's atmosphere. And really, those are the two most dangerous points in space travel is when you re-enter the Earth's atmosphere and when you mm-hmm. launch. Being in space is much less dangerous than getting up to space or coming back to Earth. Hmm. Re-entry, is, re-entry is incredibly dangerous. Interesting. Um, I just a small aside. I thought how fascinating it would have been to be a part of the Russian space program, go on a on a mission, be up in space for whatever the time was, and come back. And in that amount of time, for there to have been a coup, to turn over your government, and now you have a new president of Russia. You know, I uh, I'm something of a political scientist. And I not somewhat. I mean, you have a degree in it. Yeah, I do. But I would, I would say, I would admit that I kind of glossed over a lot of the politics. I explain enough of the politics in this podcast to, to give the audience an idea of what is relevant. But I glossed over a lot of that, and that is that is absolutely shocking. Is that they they left their country for a couple of days, or maybe just a day? I think it might have just been twenty four hours, and then they came back. And there's a different government there to greet them, and that was that was the Soviet Union. It was this crazy political system, yeah. and there's a lot more that I could have said about it's that. It's kind of like about... time travel, though, like where you go on a time travel, and like you just go somewhere and you're a different time, and the people that like all the rules i wouldn't say all the rules are different but i mean like things are completely different than when you left there are a lot of aspects i i, I genuinely believe that the history of the space race it's kind of the greatest science fiction novel ever <laughs> written even though it's it's not a science fiction novel but you i don't think i don't think the most brilliant author on earth could have come up with a more exciting and thrilling and crazy story for human spaceflight than the story of the space race. I think it's, and I say, it's, I think it's the most amazing chapter in human history. I would also say, so you, you talk about it as like, it's like a science fiction novel. They come back and some completely different government is there to greet them. It's a lot like uh, Alexei Leonov, who became the first uh, man to walk in space, to float, float around in space. They came back and they, their space capsule landed in Siberia. So they went from being space travelers to being people who landed in one of the most remote parts of the planet Earth and wondering, are we going to get eaten by a bear in the middle of the night? Are we going to freeze to death? It's like crash landing on another planet in in many respects. And that was was the experience that they had. There There were also some interesting accounts of Russians who came back and landed off course, and they weren't sure where they were. In uh, one of these stories, they're not sure where they are, and they're in... They... There's no iPhones. You can't pull up Google Maps. It's hard. Exactly. <laughs> but there's one account where they don't know 
where they are and they think that they might have landed in China or Mongolia and they do what they were instructed to do is they start taking all their they have like a flight manual and they take they have like numerical data and things like that and they start they immediately uh they crash land on the ground you know with the parachutes slowing their descent and they get out of their space capsule and they start burning every, all the paperwork that they have because they don't want the some enemy country or some hostile country to, to gain any of this valuable right. intel about space travel. So they start burning all of their documents. Then they start like eating their food rations. And another thing that I pointed out is all Russian space missions for a long time had a gun on board. Yeah. Now, that was not something that the United States of America, to our knowledge ever did but it was something that it, it's a reflection of the fact that the soviet union was very different had a very different approach to space travel and so they they had a, and that was if you landed in a foreign country where they were hostile at least you have a gun but you know if you, if you land in a survival situation if there's angry aggressive bears that are trying to eat you well at least you have a gun do you know what like caliber they carried like i would imagine be a 22 it's something the 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 least weight possible it was uh it was a specially constructed russian space gun a space gun it's not it's not a to any gun enthusiast listening it's not a normal gun it's a specially constructed gun for the Russian space program, and Did I believe it go pew pew instead of actually shooting. It's not a laser. No, <laughs> it's not a laser gun. No, no, no. But it just said it, it made the pew pew sound. When it pew shot. pew. Yeah. No, it is a. Uh, it was. I think, from what I've read about it, oh, we could do a whole podcast on space guns, but it was a. It could launch flares, but it could also mm-hmm. fire like I think. I think it could fire like bullets or shotgun rounds. So it was a very versatile weapon uh-huh. where they where they wanted to say it's like, hey, if you need to launch flares, you could stick flares in there. But if you need to fire bullets, you could fire fire bullets in there. I think it was double barreled. It was a really interesting weapon. Wow, I wouldn't want to shoot something like that. If you could shoot a shotgun round, it sounds like it's a pretty round caliber. Yeah, uh, it was it's, it's an interesting machine, but it was specially designed for those missions. Huh. I only said 22 because I figured that would be the most lightweight to be able to get up there and carry around. Yeah, but if you have an aggressive bear like charging at you, maybe a 22 is not necessarily the, the weapon that you want to be using. Right. So I wrote down this kind of a dumb question, I'm sure, but uh, do you know what the actual cosmonaut, cosmonaut I mean the Russian suicide pill was? Or if they landed in the wrong country. What what the pill was chemically? Yeah, was it like arsenic or some crazy? I think it was like a that? cyanide pill, isn't yeah. that? Isn't that what the like the American CIA used for that's a long time? That's the generic belief that that's what that is. I, it actually wasn't revealed for a very long, like for decades and decades. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew that he had a, a suicide pill mm-hmm. like in his helmet, ready to ready to swallow if things things went bad. I still and I wanted to bring this up before. You started kind of teetering into it, but after that, that landing of that Russian mission where they ended up in Siberia, yeah, I just I thought that was so insane that you could end up in a place where you have no idea where you are, and that it, you would just be basically hoping and wishing that everything will work out in your favor, like, and hopefully the Russians will be able or your people, your country will be able to find you. 
Yeah, and all you could tell yourself at that point is, well, <laughs> they have a vested interest in finding us because the Russian government really wants to be able to say, hey, first spacewalk, first Russian to step outside of his space capsule, Russian hero right here. They had a vested interest in finding them. The fucked up thing that I found in in constructing this podcast is that they called up their families and they said, good news, your husbands are... Uh, recovered, they're alive and well, and they're attending a debriefing, and you'll be able to see them shortly, and then hung up the phone and said, all right, we don't know where the fuck these people are, we don't know if they're two frozen corpses, but we need to find them really fucking quick. That that was, that was the level of lies and deceit in the Soviet Union, where they would, they would call up a family and say, everything's fine, everything went according to plan, uh, the, your, these two astronauts, they're, these two cosmonauts, are alive and well, everything's fine. And they would hang up the phone and be like, all right, we got to fucking find these motherfuckers. You know, I in the military, every Friday, you have a weekend safety brief, regardless of who you are. Unless you're an officer, and then you just, you can act like a human being. But when you're enlisted, it's like every Friday, they pull all the enlisted folks into one room. And the senior enlisted, to all the, the quote-unquote junior, everyone that's like E6 or E5 and below, like, don't drink and drive. Use a condom. Don't kill anybody. Yeah. If you are, whatever, call a number on the phone roster or whatever. Yeah. And I can only imagine a much worse, like, scenario of, like, I don't know where I'm getting it with this. That that it would, living in an eternal frozen life, like, freezing to death might almost be better than having to sit through the number of safety briefs I've had I've been doing <laughs> my entire life. Um, so yeah. well, I, I would say that uh, survival training for cosmonauts and American astronauts was part of becoming an astronaut. And even today, if it is your dream to become an astronaut, there's a lot that you're going to learn about science, about physics, about being a pilot, about flying in outer space. But there's also an extensive amount of material about just survival training because American astronauts were well aware that they might one day land off course yeah. or they might land somewhere in the South Pacific. They might land on some desert Island where they will have to survive for some period of time until yeah. they get picked up. So that was a reality. Yeah. Um, the, uh, Lenov suit inflation scenario sounded really scary. Oh yeah. Um, Alexei Lenov. Essentially, I mean, I, at the risk of being redundant and repeating like what we said in the podcast, his suit just ballooned out. It got bigger and bigger and bigger, and he realized very quickly there's this tiny claustrophobic airlock that he has to squeeze through, and he knew he wasn't going to be able to squeeze through. And uh, this is this is another guy who I, I'm trying to keep track now of the astronauts who are still alive, the astronauts and cosmonauts who are absolutely historic pioneers who are still with us. And to my knowledge, uh, he is someone who is still very much with us and a complete a complete badass who flew into space at a time when it was very dangerous to do so. Um, so that's all I had, man. I was, I'm very satisfied after editing the, the episode. I'm really happy with it. Um, I, I hope you guys liked it. Um, we put a lot of work into it, hoping that uh, you would enjoy it. 
I am not the voice of this this show, um, but I may be the. Uh, I don't want to say this, but I think Chris and I both are artists in our own right. He writes it artistically, and I put it together artistically, and I hope that it, it absolutely it fits a colorful palette that pleases all the little hairs in your your eardrums. We just want to make the best product for you guys, and we hope you guys enjoy it. We're very appreciative of those of you out there who are listening and sharing and sending it to your friends to let them know that you found a little gem in the rough, Um, because we are rough, but we're also shiny and nice. Diamond in the rough. You're right, it's diamond in the rough, but I feel like we're a gem. Being a diamond, there's a lot of pressure being a diamond. It's true. Pun intended. Yes, very much intended. Um, so yeah, we're very we're very thankful for you guys if you're out there listening to us, and we hope to blow your socks off the last episode where America comes back like Rocky, and wins out. We we've got uh, a lot of good content coming down the pike, not just about the space race. All I'm going to say is there, there's good content coming in the future at some point, and all I would say, without getting off on another tangent... Please, is no, go off on your tangent, Chris. I read uh, a few weeks ago that there are three, three little mounds, three little hills that we found on the planet Mars that they have recently named these three distinct... Uh, Miney Mo, right? Grissom, White, and Chaffee. Mm-hmm. The names of the Apollo 1 astronauts mm-hmm. who uh, gave their lives for human space travel. So I think that's that's their legacy. And we, we, we could have done a whole podcast about them. We could have talked at, at length about them, but... That is uh, an incredible sacrifice, and really, yeah. it's it's a terrible disaster for NASA, for manned spaceflight, and for all of that. But truly, I think that you know there's an enduring legacy there, and I don't think that they have been forgotten by any no. means. No, I mean, like if you're gonna die in a way, that's probably the best way to die ever. That's that's like what the samurai would say is being like an honorable death. Right. Yeah. That's what I, I, I think that that's why I strive so hard is because that, that's how I want something. I want people to be able to be like, that's attributed to Blake 2000 years from now or a hundred years from now or whatever. Just like, I, I feel like that's the same thing for you. And I mean, it's written in your name, right? You got <laughs> your name from a guy that wanted to be remembered for the re- like for all eternity. Sure. And he is because everyone's names their their children after him to try to remind them i i had a good friend whose uh whose middle name was keith and uh his dad was a bit of a hippie a bit of a pot smoker and uh his his middle name was keith and that that, that was uh that was his dad is that where his like, name was derived from though it was marijuana related ah, well, to my to well, my understanding well. but it was his middle name well, he was the he was the kind type. I I, I he, he was a great guy. Yeah. A, he is a great guy. Yeah. Um so yeah, thanks guys.